there. Thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. Today on our podcast, we are going to be talking about when we bring food into our life and use it as comfort, and also looking at and discussing what an emotional eater is. But before we get to that, I'd like to remind you guys that you can help us keep this podcast for free and become a sponsor. You can either become a sponsor if you have a product or something of your business that you're looking to sell and you want that message to get across to the world because we have listeners from all around the globe. And if you are looking to become a smaller type of sponsor, you can go on over to the path11podcast.com website and you can click on the orange button on the right that says become a patron. And that will bring you to the website, Patreon. There, there are different types of memberships that we have, ranging from a dollar a month all the way up to $25 a month. You should check it out. We give away some gifts uh, for becoming a supporter. There's a gift of a free guided meditation done by me. We have the Path Evolution DVD that we'd like to give supporters, William Buhlman's book, Beyond Adventures Beyond the Body, and also our trilogy series. Now, if you don't know that we also make documentaries and films, you can go to path11productions.com. We have great documentaries out there about the afterlife, what happens when people die. Our second film, The Path Beyond the Physical, is all about out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, um, really learning how to use your consciousness outside of the physical body. And then the third one, The Path Evolution, is all about the the physicist that we have followed for many years, Tom Campbell's theory of consciousness being part of a virtual reality. So, and that documentary I happen to really love because it preaches a lot about love and allowing love to evolve our consciousness. We also have a web series on sensory deprivation. Not sure if anybody has ever tried a float tank before, but we have that for rent as well. So I really think you're going to enjoy today's show. If you have ever come into any type of struggle with food, and now let me introduce you to our guest. So today I am joined with Julie Simon. She is the author of When Food is Comfort and the Emotional Eater's Repair Manual. She founded the popular Los Angeles-based and online 12-week emotional eating recovery program and offers workshops at venues like Whole Foods and UCLA. Welcome, Julie. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I am really excited to talk about your book because this stuff hits home personally for me, and I'm also trying to teach it in my private practice. And um, just to give the listeners the full title of your book, we are going to be talking about When Food is Comfort, Nurture Yourself Mindfully, Rewire Your Brain, and End Emotional Eating. So I just finished up a seven-week women's wellness group, and we worked through the book called A Course in Weight Loss by Marianne Williamson. And then your book came across and all the women, women wanted to like stay connected and get together. And they said, April, when's your next thing going to be? And I got your book and I said, oh, I have another, you know, course that we could put together here by reading Julie's book. So I have a feeling I'm going to be using this book inside and out, um, come this summer. So I'm really grateful for it. Uh, I'm so excited. I think, um, your group, uh, is really going to enjoy working through the skills of this book. Yeah, I'm one of the things that I noticed with um, the other book that we went through was really targeted more on spirituality, changing the thoughts, not really taking a look at, um, you know, what people are eating per se, saying that it's not as much as a relationship with food, it is, it is more of the stuff from past and um, possibly family and things of that sort. But what I really like about your book is that you bring a lot of science into it and do a lot of education about the brain and how that connects to nurturing and parenting and the childhoods that we grew up in. So I'm hoping we can actually start the podcast off with a little bit of that. But before we get there, I would like to know and have you let our listeners know what brought you into um, I guess what brought you into this, what your what has your path been, and why did you choose this specific subject to write a book about? Yes, that's a good question and a good start. You know, I spent, I would say probably say I spent a good portion of my teens and into my 20s struggling with my weight, uh, and I 
noticed, uh, you know, the women around me, my sister and my mother and my grandmother, everybody seemed to have a weight problem. And I started in my teens uh, putting on a little bit of weight. And I was determined to figure out how to get it off. And I tried every diet. And back then, everything was about calorie counting. And I spent I was meticulous about counting calories and watching everything that went in my mouth. And uh, it was really a struggle. And it I didn't like the struggle. And it intuitively didn't make any sense to me. I thought, this just doesn't make sense. We're not, I don't think we're created to have weight problems. And how come some people can eat certain foods and not have a problem and other people gain weight? And, you know, I want to really figure out the whole overeating weight gain puzzle. So I was kind of on a quest for many years. And over time, what I came to understand was that there were many pieces to this puzzle. And so there were kind of mind, body, spirit pieces, if you will. And as I was beginning to put them together, uh, I became interested in helping other people resolve all the pieces in, in their overeating. And during that time, one of the pieces that I began to understand was that I was an emotional eater. And I turned to food I used food to calm and soothe myself, and it helped numb the pain of unpleasant emotions and negative thoughts and self-doubt and general stress. It altered my brain chemistry, and because food's so pleasurable and exciting, it was a really good distraction, and it temporarily filled up an inner emptiness and a restlessness that I regularly felt, uh, kind of a spiritual hunger. I also, so I was an emotional eater, and I also realized that I was missing some self-care skills that we would generally learn in childhood. So, for example, I had difficulty managing and regulating unpleasant emotional states. I had difficulty comforting and soothing myself. I had difficulty handling self-defeating thoughts and and self-doubts. And in general, just regulating my nervous system. And even though my parents were well-intentioned, in terms of raising their children, they were missing a lot of these skills. So there was no way they were going to, uh, you know, teach them to their children. And to add insult to injury, I had I had inherited um, brain and body imbalances that made addictive foods and substances like caffeine, um, you know, attractive to me, very attractive to me. So it took many years of study and therapy and visits to healthcare practitioners for me to put all those pieces together. And then, as I said, I really wanted to um, help other people. Uh, Once I knew that recovery was possible, during those days, I didn't know, you know, could I ever be out of this weight, diet, uh, gain weight back, overeat, you know, kind of binge, repeat, shame yourself, you know, cycle. Would I ever be done with this? And once I saw the light and I knew I was near the end of it, um, I really knew that I could help people resolve it once and for all. Yeah. And wouldn't you agree that this is just such a struggle among so many Americans? I mean, when you think about, um, you know, the diet industry, the fitness industry and the amount of money that they make off of diet pills or try, try this program or this or that, you know, like so many diets. I mean, everyone that I have met has had some sort of struggle with probably emotional eating at some point in their life. Yes, and if you if you look on Amazon and you look at the books under eating disorders that you know people are buying, there's people are still incredibly attracted to the diet books. I mean, they tend to right. sell the, they tend to sell the best. And the thing that always bothered me about diet books is that you know they attempt to apply external solutions to internal problems, and it's the equivalent of trying to you know if your if your uh, car isn't working, it's like adding paint and polishing the wheels. You know, your car is not going to work just because you add paint and polish the wheels. It's the same thing with our bodies. Just trying to, you know, go on a diet, a rigid, restricted, controlled eating plan does nothing to address these issues that we that I mentioned. You know, doesn't teach you how to regulate your emotions, doesn't teach you how to um, reframe self-defeating critical thoughts doesn't teach you how to comfort and soothe yourself, doesn't teach you how to identify and meet your needs, doesn't teach you how to set effective nurturing limits with yourself, doesn't teach you how to hold hope about the future. So all these kind of missing skills don't get learned and practiced when you go on a diet. 
Right. It kind of diets. I mean, they say diets overall in the long term really don't work. Right. Because people, they may lose weight, but what they'll find is that they'll either gain what they lost or more back because just as what you're talking about, a lot of that inner layered stuff really isn't, isn't being looked at at all. Right. Research shows 95, the statistics are sad, <laughs> 95% of people gain back their weight within two years and 98% gain back their weight within um, five years. Yes. And I, I really love your approach because I personally believe, too, that this is a bit of a journey. Like you said, there's mo so many different pieces uh, when you begin to identify that you've turned to food for emotional comfort and support. And the challenge that I've always found, too, is that it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, when you talk about on your website, you have overeating recovery, right? So um, would it be safe to say that it is a type of addiction? Would you agree with that? Uh, I think it is an addiction for some people. I okay. don't think it's an addiction for everyone. Okay. Um, because the one thing that I found with a challenge with food is that we do need food to sustain us to some, to some level. Whereas I don't need alcohol. I don't need drugs per se. You know, I don't need drugs. I don't need, um, you know, I could buy a certain amount of clothes, but I don't necessarily need as many clothes as maybe somebody who has a shopping addiction or something like that. I don't need to go out to gamble. But one thing that I do need is food. So this is where I find this issue to be quite challenging amongst some of the other, if, if we talk about for some people it being an addiction, um, how this one can be one of the most challenging because we do need food to live. Yes. I mean, and, you know, in some ways, uh, for some people, it definitely, it, the foods that they are selecting definitely are foods that they have addiction with. So that's where the overeating uh, battle, you know, can get very challenging. Right. Um, but you're right. You know, if you, I think this is in part why people will f sometimes find the 12 step uh, programs for dealing with food um, may not be as effective for them because uh, you can't you can't just abstain from eating. You know you have to eat, and um, so you still there's still a lot to deal with. I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just thinking about that yesterday, and I was thinking how how going over in my mind, you know, how these things are different. How is alcohol different than food? Uh, struggles. How is a struggle with um, opioids or um, smoking pot? You know, how is all of that different? Because all of those things you literally can go off of and live without. Right. Um, and you can't go off of food. And food is 24-7. You know, it's not, not only can you not go off of food, but you have to do food, if you will, many times a day. <laughs> you know, you right. have to make, you have to make food decisions many, many times a day. So this recovery becomes much more complex than, than the recovery from, um, you know, alcohol or other substances. Yes. Now, if our listeners are wondering, oh, okay, what does she mean by emotional eater? Am I an emotional eater? Uh, in the beginning of your book on page 12, you have a great checklist for people to do a self-inventory to see, you know, okay, how many of these are me? So I, there's, there's quite a bit, but could you just give a handful of examples um, if our listeners are wondering if they're emotional eaters, what constitutes somebody that would be doing emotional eating? Yeah, well, the first thing, let me just say before we go over the, that checklist uh, mm -hmm. that's in the book, is to, just to say that if you regularly eat when you're not hungry, if you eat beyond full, or if you choose unhealthy comfort foods more often than you'd like, there's a good chance that your eating has an emotional component to it. And a craving or an exa exaggerated desire to eat in the absence of true physiological hunger cues represents an emotional appetite. And emotional hunger often feels the same as physical hunger. So sometimes it's hard to differentiate, you know, is this emotional or am I really hungry? So I have a checklist in the book that helps you determine if your eating has an emotional component to it. And, and some of the items on the checklist, I'll, I'll give you an example of. So if you use food as a tranquilizer to dull emotions that are difficult to cope with, 
such as anxiety, anger, sadness, loneliness, shame, and, and even happiness and excitement. Perhaps you're using food to calm yourself when you're experiencing unpleasant bodily sensations such as agitation, nervousness, or muscle tension. You might be using food for soothing and comfort. Many of us use food for pleasure, uh, escape, fulfillment, excitement. Many of us eat when we're stressed out. If you eat when you if you eat when you feel numb, if you use food to silence self-defeating, critical, negative thoughts and quiet your mind. Many people turn to food after a day where their mind is, you know, they just have what they call monkey mind just all over the place and food kind of quiets the storm. If you eat when you're overwhelmed and you feel paralyzed, maybe you're eating to procrastinate, many people eat to distract themselves from what we call low motivation states or low arousal states like boredom lethargy or apathy. Uh, maybe you eat because your life is lacking purpose and meaning and passion and inspiration. And perhaps you're eating to fill up an inner emptiness. Maybe you're eating because your life has so much regret. Maybe you're eating because you feel deprived of certain things in your life. So those are examples of how you would know if you're an emotional eater. And um, if this book and my first book, The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual, uh, would be the right place for you. Yeah, and it reminds me of the catchphrase that I've heard many times about uh, people, do you either eat to live or live to eat? Yes, and I think most of us, you know, would like our relationship with food to be predominantly about, you know, fuel, eating because we need to fuel our bodies. And of course, we all want to feel pleasure from our food. And we don't want to feel that our relationship with food is challenging. That's the thing. We don't want to feel that we're in some kind of battle with ourselves and food and our weight and our thoughts about our body and food. We don't want to feel like we're in this um, battle all the time, this struggle all the time. And there is recovery. It doesn't have to be that way. I'm a walking, living example of every single thing that I teach in both my books and my 12-week program, I have been through. I know the road intimately, and I'm here to tell everyone that recovery is possible, and the only thing that is going to stand in the way is whether you practice uh, skill building or not. Yeah. So can we go into about... Um, the importance of early caregiving and how that really can affect people's brains um, depending upon the type of nurturing and caregiving that they received early on in childhood. Yes, you know, that's what's uh, so exciting. And I'll tell you, it was so exciting in my own journey because as I was learn as I was piecing together, as I said before, I was piecing together all these uh, part pieces of the overeating puzzle. And I was... Uh, learning these skills, mindful self-care skills that I had been missing from childhood, something was happening to my brain during that time, which I'll talk about in a second. And when, when I began to understand the neuroscience, it made sense to me. So what the neuroscience is showing is that uh, when the brain is forming, what's most important is early, consistent, and sufficient emotional nurturance for the brain to form properly. We need our caregivers to offer us a particular type of nurturance. We call it, part of it is called attunement, really tuning into our emotions and bodily sensations and uh, being empathic and kind and understanding. And when we get that really good, nourishing, uh, nurturing attunement early in life when the brain is forming, structures of the brain connect. And so, for example, when we're young and we, when we're an infant and a small child, we can't regulate our emotions. We don't even have labels yet for them. And so mommy or another caregiver regulates for us. We can't regulate. So we, we have a tantrum and mommy swoops in and holds us and comforts us and cuddles us and she regulates us. And she uses her words and her behaviors and she soothes and she comforts. And that's forming our brain, not only the structure of our brain, but the chemistry of our brain. Everything's getting laid down by that nurturing, kind, supportive, warm, safe, 
environment. If everything goes right, the structures in our brain, we're going to learn how to regulate. We're going to start co-regulating with mommy. We're going to regulate our nervous system. We'll see her face. We'll see her coming and we'll start to calm down and we'll begin to develop over time a supportive, comforting voice in our own head. So when we're afraid of a dog coming towards us and our emotional brain is sending out alarm systems, we're going to be able to develop a voice that says, you know, it's okay, I'll be okay, I can run to that neighbor's house. You know, something's going to, those, all those structures are going to connect in the brain. And so what's critical is the sufficiency and consistency of the nurturance early in life. And when we don't get that, those structures don't uh, develop and connect properly. And the chemistry of the brain doesn't uh, get kind of uh, laid down, if you will, properly. So we end up having not enough brain chemicals or too much brain chemicals. Um, the great news, what's so great about the neuroscience is something called neuroplasticity. So what we now know is that the brain is moldable. And at any age, even if you didn't get the, that really great external attunement from mommy or other caregivers, you can learn now, and this is what my whole book is about, you can learn, because I didn't find anybody writing about this, people were writing about attunement and people were writing about um, what's happened with the brain, but I didn't find anywhere that anyone was writing about how you practice attunement, how you can rewire your own brain, right? And mm -hmm. so it's something that I teach in my 12-week program and have been teaching. And so I want to write about the skills that I teach, which is called inner nurturing. And it's a form of the whole seven set of seven skills are a form of internal attunement. And it's designed for you to learn how to tune in to your inner world with compassion and kindness and empathy, just like you should have gotten when you were little, or maybe you did get some of it, but not enough. And how to rewire your own brain by doing that. Yeah, and that reminds me of, you know, what I teach some of my clients too, where we have an inner child, an inner parent, and the inner critic. And and typically we may see people that do have trauma in childhood that their inner child can get very triggered um, all the time. But if they didn't have that parenting, then their own inner parent, or like you call it the inner nurturing, that's something that needs to be strengthened and developed to kind of soothe that inner child that is, like you said, not being able to regulate their own emotion. Um, so that, that, that's what your inner nurturing reminds me of. Yes. I, I, I have different labels, but we're talking about the same thing. So I call that young part of you, the feeling self, the part mm -hmm. of you that's just always having feelings, positive feelings, um, unpleasant feelings. And then I differentiate just in the, I, I talk about the feeling self and the thinking self. Okay. And so yep. the thinking self to me represents either the inner critic uh, an, or a neutral voice. That's another voice in your head, a neutral voice. I think I'll wash the dishes before I call Sam. Um, that's part of the thinking self. There's the inner critic. You really did a terrible job on that. Um, you're a jerk, right? And then there's the inner nurturer. And the inner nurturer, and we need to have both those voices. We do need an inner critic because we need something to monitor our behavior a little bit, make sure if we're not studying enough for the exam, you know, that, that a voice highlights, well, you really didn't study enough. You know, you got to do a little bit better on the studying. But we don't need an inner critic to be the loud, loudest voice in our head. And we certainly don't need the inner critic voice to be a destructive critic. It needs to be more constructive. But most people, and especially emotional eaters, do not have a well-developed inner nurturer voice. And in the book, I help people understand that the limit setting that you're wanting to uh, achieve, that you want to be capable of with your food, to be able to say, gee, I'd love to have another cookie, but I had two and that's enough. The limit setting that you'd like to have that you may feel like is missing actually comes from your inner nurture voice, not your inner critic. It's not, you don't need a drill sergeant to tell you, that's it, enough, no more cookies. It, it works better if your inner 
nurturer morphs into what I call an inner limit setter. So that means it's a nurturing limit. It's an effective but gentle and nurturing limit. So when you want to eat more cookies after you had one or two, the inner nurturer says, I get it. They're so, they were really delectable and they taste incredible. And, you know, they have a little bit of that addictive feel to you. So like the brain chemicals are shooting up and you're feeling bliss from those cookies. But you know what? When we do that, when we eat that, we don't feel good later. Our eyes get puffy, our nose gets stuffy, and then all we want is then we have cravings, intense cravings. So let's stop here. We can have it again some other time, but let's stop now, right? We want to develop the inner nurturing voice because that voice is comforting and soothing. That voice might say, you know, we had those two cookies and we we need to stop, but I can really tell that you're wanting something else that not just food. I'm wondering what else what does it feel like there's not enough of? What, if, what does it feel like you're missing? So you, we need that voice to support us and walk us through life and comfort us and soothe us and help us identify what we really need instead of four more cookies. Um, so that voice has to be developed and built. And if you don't feel like you have a strong inner nurturing voice, you're probably not going to like practicing it that much in the beginning because it's going to feel awkward. This is where people, I think, run into trouble where they say, you know, I'm practicing it, but it's just not comforting me yet. It's just not soothing me. And I say, that's okay. It's not going to. It's a, it's, it's a newly developed voice. It's not going to serve all its functions fully yet. But just like playing the guitar, learning the guitar, and you learn the guitar you have to place your fingers and you have to pick out the notes and you're not very good at strumming yet. And the only thing that gets you to playing the guitar well is practice, practice, practice. And over time, from putting your fingers on the notes, on the frets, to playing, you know, seamlessly, uh, that will happen over time. And the same thing with the inner nurturing voice. You hack away at it, you keep practicing, you keep working through your skills. And over time, you start to notice, oh my God, there is a kind, gentle, soothing voice that is developing in my own head. And that's um, miraculous. <laughs> yeah. And and that practice, like in the beginning stages, um, you know, you, what's really happening as you're coaching them for that that inner nurturing is that they're they're now moving into more of a state of awareness, right? So if they are having this dialogue, whereas before they might have just unconsciously, you know, kept putting their hand in the chip bag, and before you notice, notice, you know, they ate half of the bag of chips or half of the bag of cookies. But when you introduce something like that and you're trying to practice that voice, it brings, I would say, more mindfulness to the eating. Um, I know some women that I've worked with, they'd say, well, I, you know, I heard the voice, April, and it said, do you really need that cookie? And I decided, well, I don't but I went for it anyway, but they were able to say, but I was aware that I was eating it. Whereas maybe years ago, that wouldn't even have been a dialogue that they were having when they were eating food. Yes. And that's an important first step is, um, kind of interrupting that mindless automatic eating and becoming mindful. I am, you know, I have some people on my teleseminar uh, that I run and people were telling me last week, we were, we were talking about interrupting that. And one person said, you know, I don't even realize I'm doing it until after the fact. And I mm -hmm. said, I said, I bet that's not totally true. If you really unpacked that behavior, I bet there's a moment where you're a sneaky, as you call it, inner child, or your, what I call feeling self, where your sneaky feeling self is going to go to that drive-through and get that cheesy burger. And you kind of know, like there's a moment, you right. know you're doing it, right? And then you, then you disconnect. You disconnect from any of those uh, more rational, soothing, comforting, um, logical parts of your brain and you just follow through with what the feeling self wants. So you're right. The very one, A very important first step is the mindfulness um, rather than being on automatic pilot with your food is to be mindful. And even if you don't want to stop eating and even if you want to eat the whole bag of chips, wouldn't it be nice to 
sit down maybe with the bag, maybe put them in a bowl, maybe really savor them and enjoy them rather than wolf them. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing in your book that just going back to the brain, I, I'm pretty sure I know that I read this a while ago, totally forgot about it. It was a great reminder, but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth and have you educate me a little bit more on some of the chemicals in the brain. Um, and the two, the few that I'm familiar with are the endorphins, dopamine, and serotonin that you talk about. But the other two, the GABA and the glutamine, and the glutamine having to do with uh, sweet cravings and good digestion, I was hoping you can talk a little bit about the chemicals because I like this part of um, tying it into the journey and understanding more of where some of these cravings are coming from, uh, why we get soothed when we eat and understanding it from that biological and kind of nervous system level. Yeah, well, it's really, uh, it's a very important part of recovery. I was just looking while we're talking because, um, in my first book, I really write a lot about the brain chemistry. So I'm just going to find that for you really quick. Um, so, and I, I cover it lightly in the second book. Um, so we do have, you know, five main food-related, uh, mood-related neurotransmitters, I'm sorry. Um, and they're mood-related and they can result in mood disturbances and food cravings. So we have dopamine, which is your natural um, caffeine. We have glutamine, which is actually not a brain chemical. It's an organic substance, but it acts like a brain chemical. Um, your brain and your gut have very high concentrations of glutamine. And typically, people who have a lot of sugar cravings, um, including alcoholics, can be very low in glutamine because glutamine helps sugar metabolism, serotonin, as you said, endorphins, and GABA. And so it's very important that we have uh, all of our brain chemicals working properly. We we may have inherited some uh brain chemical imbalances. As I said before, if we don't have the kind of early nurturance, sufficient and consistent early nurturance that we need, we may not um, lay down the wiring for um, uh, creating the level of brain chemicals that we need. So we may have deficiencies going on there in any of the brain chemicals. And so, for example, you asked about glutamine. If if you were low in glutamine, okay, things you might feel, you might feel fatigue, low mental alertness, unclear thinking, low mood, imbalanced blood sugar, and poor digestion. That's often a good sign of glutamine. Now, these symptoms could be for many things, so don't just rush out and go get glutamine. But <laughs> you'll also have, you may have... I talk about glutamine with clients who have very intense sweet cravings. So anybody that I work with who is kind of a sugar addict or eats a lot of sugar and sweets, I'm always um, thinking about whether they might have a glutamine deficiency. Um, if you have really strong cravings for sweets, starches, and alcohol, uh, you may have some glutamine imbalances. And then you also asked about, were you asking about um, endorphins? Um, the GABA? Or GABA. The yeah. GABA, that's right. So GABA is your natural Valium. And so everybody's brain, if it, uh, if you, if something's happening in your life and you're really agitated and uptight, if your GABA, uh, if your GABA machinery, if you will, is working properly, it's going to squirt out what, um, some people call GABA goo. It's going to, it's going to calm down all that agitation if your GABA is working properly. So it's, it's like our natural Valium. And people that are low in GABA, some of the symptoms, the deficiency symptoms are that you might have chronic anxiety, uh, difficulty relaxing, stiff or tense muscles. You might feel exhausted from stress. You know how we, you can have stress and you feel tired, but there's a difference when your GABA isn't working properly, you might just feel kind of bone tired, you know, really exhausted from stress. Um, and you may have excessive reactions to normal stressors, like you're just over the top agitated from normal stressors or stressors that aren't huge. That can be because your GABA uh, isn't working as well. And just like with uh, a lot of these neurotransmitter deficiencies, you might 
crave sweets and starches and alcohol. Um, but with GABA, sometimes I'm on the alert for GABA deficiency with clients that I'm working with who crave fatty foods, you know, like they like to eat really high fat foods. So when they're stressed, they want a cheesy, you know, hamburger, they want, um, they like French fries and chips and cheese and, um, fatty meats, uh, that sometimes is a tip off, uh, for GABA. Those can also be a tip off for dopamine deficiency because, um, fatty meats will trigger a dopamine release as well. So, uh, this is a very important part of overeating recovery is taking a look at, uh, the chemistry of the brain and whether we have enough of the brain chemicals that we need to feel a balanced mood, um, to feel excited, to feel hope, um, to feel calm when we need to feel calm. Uh, serotonin is one of those chemicals and serotonin is, serotonin is, is like the major mood regulator. So when your serotonin is balanced, um, serotonin will kind of, if you're too anxious, will calm anxiety. And if you're down and depressed, it will lift you up. So when you, serotonin is, um, another one that's a lot, a lot of serotonin in the brain and a huge amount of serotonin in the gut. Um, so if your gut is not working well, if your gut is imbalanced, your glutamine may be imbalanced, your serotonin is seriously imbalanced. So this is a very big part of uh, overeating recovery, and it's very much related to the kind of nurturance and soothing that we got when we were younger. And sometimes uh, before you embark on a path to maybe treat your low brain chemicals, you know, with um, alternative treatments like uh, amino acids, vitamin and herb therapy, which is uh, what, what I talk about some of that in the first book. And um, you can treat them without medications. Some people can, can adjust their brain chemicals without medications. But sometimes before even addressing treating your brain chemistry, if you practice the mindfulness skills in this book, you may find that's all you need uh, to rewire your brain and you're fine. You know, that, right. that some, of, some of this may just be uh, how you're relating to yourself regularly. So by not, by learning to nurture yourself and comfort yourself and soothe yourself and reframe those thoughts, you may find that your mood uh, adjusts itself and your brain chemicals uh, adjust themselves. You know, because just thinking pleasant thoughts and feeling good about life lifts brain chemistry. Right. That 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 was going to be what I was going to say too. Yeah. And and if they're taking themselves out of that stress response, out of fight or flight, and allows the chemicals to re-regulate, then they're going to have that positive response as well. Right. It's all you know. The body is a giant feedback loop. So. Mm. You know, it's mind, body, spirit, and it's all working together all the time. So sometimes we can we can start with a mindfulness practice like the skills in this book, and then see where we're at there. If we, see if we need some brain chemical adjustments, if we have actually inherited some deficiencies. Um, you know, the good news is is that we can treat all of that today. Uh, with alternative treatments that are much milder and gentler than medications and um, kind of get your brain really working optimally. Now, we've been talking a lot about the, you know, practicing the inner nurturing. And in your book, you really take the reader through what the seven skills are in order to practice this inner nurturing. And I was wondering if you could just highlight what those seven skills are. Yes. So, the very first skill, the very first thing we learn to do uh, when we're learning to nurture ourselves is we pop the hood. I call it pop the hood. So when you are uh, stressed out, when you want to turn to food, you want to grab food, you've had a difficult day, you had an argument with someone, or you're just plain bored uh, and, and unmotivated, you pull away, take a pause from whatever you're doing, pull away. I think it's best if you write because um, research shows that, you know, you're more focused and actually writing itself is very calm, can calm you down and regulate your nervous system. So pull out a piece of paper 
And the first skill is called pop the hood. You're going to, you're going to notice what bodily sensations are you experiencing right now and what emotions are you having? And some people are better at labeling emotions. Some people are very good at labeling emotions. Oh, I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm lonely. Some people aren't very good at getting at their emotions and they might be better at noticing their bodily sensations. I don't know what my emotions are, but my neck is tight. My jaw is clenching. I feel some butterflies in my stomach. So we learn to slowly just pay attention to what's happening in the body and what, how emotions are presenting in the body. I was doing this with someone yesterday and she said, I have just a, a ton of tension behind my right eye, right? That was part of how tension was, uh, emotion was presenting in her body is tension behind her right eye. So we start by becoming mindful of what we are feeling. And then we want to begin our process of wiring in that nurturing voice. So the second skill is that we practice self-validation. So this is where the the voice starts. We start to use the, the nurturing voice and we learn, and I teach skills and wording and phrasing and everything in the book. So you learn the language of self-compassion. So we begin to validate. I can understand feeling that way. It makes sense that you're sad about that. Of course, you're feeling loss. Of course, you're disappointed. Third step is we bring in the inner nurture even more fully and we remind ourselves and we offer love and support and we soothe and comfort. So here comes the inner nurture now and she reminds you or he that she's on the scene. I'm here with you. You're not alone. I'm closer to you than your breath. I'm with you always. I love you. I care about you. And now maybe she starts her soothing. She says, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I know what a difficult time this is for you. Maybe she's offering a little hope. We're going to get through this together. So now we're starting to practice and build that voice. Because when you think about it, you know, you can go to therapy forever or you can um, talk to your friends about your problems forever. But where do you go to, to learn how what this voice sounds like and to practice it. It just isn't happening out there. People just aren't practicing. If they didn't develop this voice when they were young, most people just don't develop it. You know, they just go through life and they never develop it. So I teach them what it sounds like, what are the phrases you might say, and you over that working through these skills, you're going to learn what exactly do I find comforting? You know, is it comforting for me to say to myself that everything's going to turn out okay? Or is it comforting for me to say to myself that um, I'm just going to focus on this moment? What do you find comforting? What do you find soothing? It's very important to get clear on that and then know to use that in the future. So that's skill number three. Skill number four is now we're ready to identify our needs in this situation. So you've just had an argument with your partner and you've identified what you're feeling and you've validated what you're feeling and you've the inner nurture, just like mommy, has swooped in to give comfort and soothing. And now she helps you figure out what are you needing? Well, I guess I'm needing reassurance that my partner is not going to leave me. I'm needing a reminder that it's okay to be angry when I'm angry. You know, what are you needing? The other few steps quickly, um, catching and reframing self-defeating thoughts. Maybe in that situation, you have a thought that um, what I said to my partner is going to create a rift that we'll never get over, right? Self-defeating thought, learn how to reframe that. It's okay to sometimes blurt something out. I don't have to be perfect to be loved. Right? So we're learning how to reframe some of the self-defeating thoughts that we have. The next skill is learning how to highlight our strengths. Because often when we're really struggling with something, we forget all that's really wonderful about us, all that's really great, all the talents and skills and aptitudes and traits that we have that are wonderful. So in skill number six, we learn how to identify our strengths and our resources, internal and external. And we learn how to hold hope because hope is a critical uh, state that we need to know how to get into. 
Um, how do we get to hope when we're hopeless? It's a very important uh, emotional self-care skill. We learn how to hold hope. And the last skill, we, uh, and I, it is strategically set as last, is um, we learn how to uh, work on our needs, meet our needs. And we don't want to meet our needs. We do this last because the other skills take you through uh, emotional regulation. So first we regulate the emotions and the body and we get calm. We regulate, we move out of the emotional brain. We can't figure out all this stuff until we regulate the emotions and the body. Then we can access the logical brain for solve, problem solving and limit setting. So in this final skill, we learn how to meet our needs give you skills and tools for that. And we also learn how to set gentle and effective limits with ourselves. And this is where, as I said earlier, the voice of the inner nurturer is now going to morph. Now we're ready. We've, we've started to develop her voice in our brain. And now she's coming in loud and clear and she's kind and loving and empathic and attuned and warm. And now now we trust her. We like her. We trust her. She takes care of us. Now we're going to let her set a limit on us. Now she's going to come in and you're going to be standing at the at, in the kitchen wanting those cookies. And you're going to say, I want another cookie. And she's going to say, you know, I think we had enough food for today. We can have cookies another day. And the feeling self says, no, I want a cookie. I don't care. And the inner nurturer says, well, I care. I care. And I care about our health. And we're not going to have another cookie tonight, but tell me what else that you're needing. And so I say to people, when you learn to do all these skills, instead of the feeling self always having the last word, I want the cookie, give it to me now. And an inner indulger stepping in and saying, okay, what's one more cookie? Instead of the feeling self having the last word, the inner nurture has the last word. That's what we want. We, we don't want the inner critic to have the last word. We don't want the feeling self to have the last word. We want the inner nurture to have the last word. I like that. That's awesome. And it's just, it seems like a great seven step kind of, you know, program. And I know that you are actually offer a 12 week program, um, online and, or in person, right? Cause you're out in California. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you have one coming up. So can you talk a little bit about the 12 week emotional eating recovery program? Uh, because maybe some of our listeners might enjoy signing up for this. Yes, in the 12 weeks, actually, the uh, my first book, The Emotional Eaters Repair Manual, is based on the 12-week program. So in the 12-week program, we go through the mind, body, and spirit um, imbalances that lead you to use food. And we cover everything, including brain chemistry and what to eat and eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full. We do all, all of it. And we learn inner nurturing in the program as well. So we cover the first book and we cover the second book. We learn to do all of that. And I walk you through it personally. Every single week we have a lecture uh, on all of this. And then every single week we have a live coaching call. Um, or if you're in person, of course, you know, we're doing the lecture and the coaching in person. And I do it personally myself. I don't have anyone else do it uh, because... You know, I know the road so intimately. Um, so, you know, you get to work with yours truly, <laughs> uh, walking you through every step of the way. And, and we, do, we do a lot of deep diving uh, to, you know, really get under what all this uh, overeating puzzle is for each person. And then after when the 12 week is over, I have follow up groups. So people stay with me, you know, for another 12 weeks and we go even deeper. So it's, it's a, um, it's a really important part of recovery because I think reading the books are really important and, and many people can put the skills into action just from reading the book, but many people feel that they need more help. And I wanted to provide something that's, you know, probably ultimately less expensive than, you know, one-on-one -on -one therapy or coaching sessions um, and accessible to anyone uh, across, you know, the world. You know, because if you, you have a phone or a computer, you can join in. 
Yeah. And, and when people sign up for it, is this also, it looks like that they get separate, um, you know, coaching calls, but are there a bunch of people that are calling in? Uh, so they're a part of this group or is it all one-on-one? It's all, it's a group. So it's group, group. coaching. Okay. So we're all on it together. And what's so great about that is that what research shows is that group work with eating challenges is incredibly powerful. You know, hearing other people processing through something, uh, you hear it maybe in a different way than just in a one-on-one session with a therapist or a coach. So group coaching is proven, you know, that it's evidence-based that it's, it's very effective for uh, eating challenges. And these trainings are coming up, it looks like April 21st, 2018, Sunday, April 22nd. You have a bunch of days and times to choose from. Another one that's um, starting Mondays, the 23rd of April, Tuesdays, April 24th, and Fridays, April 27th. Yes, coming up You're very busy. soon. <laughs> <laughs> busy, busy lady. Yes. Well, I'm so passionate about this work. I, I love running my groups. Um, I, I get nourished by working with people on these issues because the, the phone calls, the coaching calls we have are so delicious. I mean, they're, you know, they're intimate and you wouldn't think necessarily that, you know, a number of people calling in on a phone would be so intimate, but it is very intimate. And over time we get to know each other. I, we open up a Facebook group book for more, uh, yeah, Facebook group for more sharing and it's very intimate and it's a, it's a shame-free zone. I mean, I really create a shame-free, no judgment zone where we can just really spill the beans about what we're struggling with, what's going on, uh, and get support from each other and, you know, guidance, you know, from a professional who, who's been down the road. It's wonderful, Julie. And for those of you who are listening who are interested to get more information about her books or the 12-week program that's coming up, you can visit her website at overeatingrecovery.com. And they can also, by the way, on my website, they can download two free chapters of either book if they want to get a sneak peek and and do a little reading before they purchase. Excellent. Well, Julie, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. I enjoyed reading your book. Uh, There's some great tools. I'm going to be using it as well. Um, So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my complete pleasure chatting with you. (laughs) If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!